Jesus once asked some fishermen to leave their nets and follow him. This meant they had to change their identity and their focus. They had to learn the ways of a new work, to connect their hearts to a new mission, to build new relationships, to give their time and resources, and allow a new character to be built within them. We may not be fishermen, but Jesus still calls us to and disciples us in a new life. So, will you leave your net when Jesus asks you? Contrary to what the weather has been like recently, I mean, hail, grapple, snow, wind, uh, it's actually spring. And one of the things that spring means is that it is lawn mowing season. And I've kind of been in denial about that a little bit, but I thought before my neighbors start a petition, I better mow my lawn. The funny thing about lawns is that they will grow. And so you kind of got to decide what you're going to do about that. You can take my approach. I watched all of my neighbors mowing theirs and I thought, I'm just going to ignore this for a while until I can't ignore it anymore. You can just get out there and cut it. Or I suppose you could start cutting it and stop because you got tired or it rains or whatever. One of the things that I like about mowing lawns, it's, it's somewhat satisfactory because there's such a huge change when you do it. I mean, so many things in my life are never actually finished. So mowing the lawn is a little bit satisfying because as you're doing it, you can look behind you and you can see where you've, where you've been and you can see how well you've done. You know, you can see whether you're in a, smart, in a straight line or you're wandering all over the place or if you've missed the spot or whatever. That's kind of some immediate gratification with that. You also get a chance to decide where you're going. And I'm always dreaming. I aspire to lines like they have at Major League ballparks. You know, just those perfect little diamonds that they have out there. I just love that. And I do the best that I can. But the way to do that is to focus on a point in the distance. And here's a pro tip. I learned this from a Norwegian farmer, which as a Swede reminds me that occasionally Norwegians have a good idea. But what you do is you focus on not just one uh, point in the distance, but you line two up and then you'll be going absolutely straight. So pro tip for that. But at the very least, you pick a spot and you aim ahead. And that way you'll keep going straight in, in that direction. Because if you look behind you or if you look right in front of you, you'll find out that you can wander all over the place and feel like you're going straight. So it's springtime. Your lawn is set before you, ready to mow and you've got to decide what to do. Many of you will also note that this is the week after Easter, the week after Resurrection Sunday, and our lawns are like our lives. There's something set before us, and we have to decide what to do with that. So today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Paul writes, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do 
forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So we've begun a new sermon series, uh, Leave Your Nets. And the idea is like the first disciples uh, who were fishermen, Jesus said, follow me. They dropped their nets and they followed him. Jesus is calling us to follow him. Jesus is calling us forward on a path of discipleship. Jesus is calling us into a relationship with him that's taking us somewhere, uh, moving us more and more towards becoming like Jesus and participating in God's redemption of the world. Last week was Easter. And so now we have to continually decide how we're going to live in response to that event. I mean, one of the things I talked about in the Easter sermon was that people knew that the resurrection occurred. They just needed to be reminded about why it's important. And so now we're going to remind ourselves about why it's important and decide whether we're going to mow the lawn or not. So let's unpack this a little bit. Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Now, the next couple of verses are notoriously difficult to translate. They're just tough. And this particular phrase, I want to know Christ, can also be translated just as well as since I know Christ. And that may capture better the idea of now what? Uh, I want to know Christ. Now what do I need to do? Or, since I know Christ, what does that mean for the future? And I kind of like that better. And what Paul introduces right away is this movement in the text. We know Christ, therefore that should cause some action in our lives. And Paul is countering something here. When, when he's writing this letter to the, to the Philippians, he's reminded that, reminding them that they have to keep moving forward. Why? Because some of them are tempted not to move forward. One of the greatest challenges in the early church was a sense that people were done. They believed in Jesus, they got baptized, they were done. Uh, there was even this sense that there was this secret knowledge, and once you had this secret knowledge, you didn't really have to do anything else. You had it all. Now, we might not think that there's some secret knowledge that we need to have, but I'm sure sometimes we're tempted to go, well, I believe in Jesus. I've been baptized. I'm a good person. I'm done. But Paul confronts us with this action point. Since you know Christ, you need to do something. I remember my very first sermon in my previous church in Stockton, which I think I preached in the year 2000, was on this very passage. And the reason that I wanted to preach on this passage, um, that I want to know Christ, is I wanted people to know that about me. There's all sorts of things that are important to me, but they all flow from this one thing. I want to know Christ, or since I know Christ, I want that to make an impact on my life. So it's almost like a purpose statement that Paul is leading with, that he, that he hands out to us too, as if to say, will this be your purpose too? And then he continues, yes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And that really reminds us that the resurrection is what changes everything. The resurrection is what alters our worldview. The resurrection sets the future in motion. And the resurrection means that there are present implications of a future reality. Because we'll be resurrected with Jesus too, 
that has implications for how we live our lives. That means that we can live into a new life now if we decide to do that. So Paul wants to know Christ and he wants to know him in the power of his resurrection. But how do you know the power of his resurrection? Well, Paul gives two ways. The first is participation in his sufferings. And it's like, you hear that, you know, to know Christ, you have to participate in his sufferings. Like, whoa, you know, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My job now is to just kind of have a good time till he raptures me out of here. But the first thing that Paul says, if we're going to live in the resurrection life, is that means to participate in Jesus' sufferings. Not to add to what he did, it's not a salvation thing, it's not like you're called to be a co-redemptor with Jesus, but it's just an acknowledgement that to follow Jesus may mean having to do some hard things. And then he goes a little bit further and says, becoming like him in his death. And again, it's not, you know, you're called to be a co-redemptor with Jesus, it's the idea of complete surrender. Uh, I love Bonhoeffer's comment. When Jesus calls a person to himself, he bids him come and die. Last week I heard somebody say, if Jesus, ha if Jesus hadn't died, then the resurrection was just getting up in the morning. Uh, we're called to die to ourselves so that we can be raised to new life with Jesus. And why would we want to die to ourselves and then be raised to, to a new life? Well, we're not as good at making choices as we think we are. When push comes to shove, we're not really in control of all that much. We have this promise of peace and joy and hope and significance in Christ. We have a, a, the possibility of a relationship with God who is in control and who has a good future in store for us. And so in response to that, our posture becomes, what do you have for me, God? How can I be like Jesus in this situation? How can I bring hope here? It's very different from how many of us approach God, which is, here's what I've got planned. Would you please baptize this and bless this? It's an acknowledgement that sometimes following Jesus is going to be inconvenient because we're going to be called to serve and care for other people and put our prerogatives and preferences aside just as Jesus did for us. And then Paul follows with, and so having done these things, somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is not an iffy statement on Paul's part. This is not, if I suffer enough for Jesus, if I die to myself enough, uh, then I will hopefully attain the resurrection to the dead. No, the somehow is how it's actually going to happen. I mean, it, Paul is absolutely clear that he and we will participate with Jesus. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's the first fruits, we will be raised too. The, the iffy part for Paul is, is he going to live a long life or will he end up being martyred? And even that is a testimony to Paul's willingness to do the things he just called us to, to potentially suffer for Christ. Um, so the iffiness is not about whether or not he will attain the resonance, just how it will happen. Then he goes on in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Verse 12 and verse 13 
Um, Paul says essentially the same thing. I haven't already obtained this. I haven't already arrived at my goal. I do not consider myself already yet to have taken hold of it. So once again, it's that feeling of movement. There's a goal, there's a place to be, and Paul is on the road, but he hasn't got there yet. We're in process. We're moving towards something. We're moving towards a goal. And we all have one, whether we know it or not. Your goal might be to accumulate a lot of money. Your goal might be to be left alone just to do what you want to do. Your goal might be to do as little as possible. Your goal might be to make a difference in people's lives. I, I don't know. Our goal as Jesus followers is ultimately to continue to be more and more like Jesus. But whatever you find your current goal is, I don't want us to miss the movement aspect of this. Life is about moving forward. Life is about growing. Life is about developing. Well, hopefully anyway. So it seems to me as Paul talks about process, about moving forward, about being called to a goal to move forward, you can either, I think three possibilities. You can be moving forward, you can be moving backward, losing ground, or you can stop and be going nowhere. Uh, what do I think is the best choice? Moving forward, growing, developing. As a church saying, God, what do you have for us now? How can we live into that? We want to move forward with what the Holy Spirit is doing. And as individuals, the same thing. God, you're doing a new thing. I want to be a part of that. What have you got for me today? What have you got for me now? I want to move forward in that. I think moving forward into what God has called us to is the best choice. What do I think is the most dangerous choice to make to the mission of God? It's not going backward. You've disengaged for one reason or another. It can thwart the purpose of God in your life. It can disrupt how God would have used you to bring hope and healing to other people, but I don't think it's the most dangerous to the mission of God when people give up. It's the going nowhere that I think is the most dangerous because the person who is going nowhere is still engaged. They're just not focused on the right things. And if you're not focused on being more like Jesus, knowing him more deeply, following him more closely, what are you going to be focused on instead? Maybe not wrong things, although sometimes that happens, but maybe just not the most important things. And sometimes good is the enemy of best. Let's think about money, for instance. For years, Rick Jameson has driven the finances around here, for which I am eternally grateful for what that man has helped us with. He has all kinds of things that he says. Things like the budget is for you, or the budget serves the ministry, the ministry doesn't serve the budget, or the budget is really a ministry plan. And those all help us to think about what the most important thing is when it comes to money. And we strive for rigorous financial accountability. And so because of that, you trust us with your money because you know that we will do with it what we said we would, and that you know that we will take the money that you give us and we will turn it around and put it back in ministry that impacts the world for the kingdom of God. But I wish that we could generate as much interest in ministry accountability as we do 
financial accountability. When ministry, uh, uh, when ministry possibilities come around, often the first issue, the first question is, can we afford it? Not, is God calling us to it? When we look at ministry, oftentimes we don't hold ourselves accountable to accomplishing things in the same way that we do to uh, financial accountability. I was told recently about a church that has $4 million in reserves that they won't spend. I guess they're holding on to it in case they might need it someday. Brothers and sisters, I freely acknowledge that I don't have all the information about that church or their money. But my gut says that if you're holding on to $4 million just in case you might need it someday, your trust is not in God, your trust is in your money. And you're seriously limiting the amount of ministry that can be done. One of the things that is so important to us, that we say is important to us, is to bring people to Christ. And so we keep talking about that. And if you have a relative, a son, a daughter, a grandma, a friend that doesn't know Jesus, you're really invested in this. And over Easter, many of you brought family and friends who didn't know the hope that we have in Jesus. And that's great because you really, really care about that. But the truth of the matter is, it's a lot of work to bring people to Christ. It makes us change the focus from just what makes us happy to be what will be most effective to reach people. And what if they come? What if they sit where we like to sit? What if they want to join our small group, which is going really great? What if they don't act like us? What if they don't vote like us? What if they don't have the same values as they're coming to know Jesus? I mean, do we agonize over the fact that people do not regularly come to Christ through the ministry of our church? Do we hold ourselves accountable for not sharing the gospel with the people that we love? Or I think about discipleship. Discipleship, what this whole service, ser sermon series is about, is about becoming more like Jesus. Discipleship, discipleship isn't synonymous with Bible study. Can Bible study lead to discipleship? Well, sure, if you let it. But think of someone you know who has a major character flaw who is a Jesus follower. Didn't take long, did it? How come everybody just tolerates that? Wouldn't discipleship lead us to want to change as people? Wouldn't discipleship lead us to want to help other people to change? But keeping peace oftentimes is more important. And so we say, well, that's just so-and-so being so-and-so. And in so doing, we just keep rewarding bad behavior. We don't push them towards discipleship. We're in process. We're being called to movement. We can move forward, we can move backward, or we can stop moving. The lawn is growing and it needs to be mowed. The resurrection has happened and needs to be lived into. What are we gonna do? Because all three of those choices will have implications and consequences. We can move forward and experience blessings or something else. And what's Paul's advice? Well, in this passage, he says it twice. I press on. He says it once in verse 12, and he says it once in verse 14. And again, it's interesting language because the word that he uses about pressing on can be taken from one or two arenas of life. The first is, it's a hunting word. It basically, and has been used previously in Philippians this way, says, I am hunting this. 
And it's especially interesting with Paul because before Paul came to know Jesus, Paul literally hunted Christians. And so maybe what is in that language is, I was previously hunting Christians, but now I am tracking down Jesus so that I can be like him. And that's just a really rich turn of phrase there. It also, obviously from the text, can refer to athletics. I'm gonna keep running the race. I'm gonna keep moving forward. Either of those are good, but they both require dedication and they both require a commitment. I press on. And then he kind of talks about the character of pressing on. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love in the original language, it just says, but one thing, there's no verb. It's just, there is one thing. And then Paul needs to act on it. But constantly before him, there is one thing pressing forward. I love that the emphasis that he has this. And I, I'm helped by a couple of years ago, Ben Wysong, who used to be on our staff, made me this wood carving that's in this picture. It's right above my doorway, and I see it when I sit at my desk. I see it every time I leave my office. Keep the main thing the main thing. I have to have one thing that I'm focused on. And I'd like to remind myself that I need to be focused on the most important thing. So Paul says in order to press forward, there's two things that he does. He forgets what is behind and he strains towards what is, be, what is ahead. Forgetting what is behind. Well, what's behind us? Well, it could be the mistakes of the past. I mean, maybe Paul is like, I used to persecute the church, I used to hate Jesus, but that's in the past. I'm not living there anymore, I'm moving forward. So we may need to forget the past too, maybe the mistakes of the past. We also might need to forget the way things used to be done because the world has changed and too many churches are living in the 70s or the 90s. We may need to forget the glory days of when we were just hitting our stride and everything is great because we may never be able to have those days back again. Whatever it is, whatever was in the past, good, bad, or indifferent, Paul says, I gotta let that go. I can't live in that. That can live in me, but I can't live in that because if I'm only living in the past, I will never move forward. Paul says, I forget what is in the past and I strain towards what is forward. I love this verb too. Paul doesn't say, I casually saunter towards the thing in the future. It's a straining. It's, it's that race imagery. It's seeing the finish line. I remember during the Olympics, I was so taken with the cross-country skier 